Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I've been much enthused recently about the foundational work that empowers and motivates people to seriously engage with care for our world and to take people from it's nice but to my life needs to be aligned with this. There are so many groups doing this in so many different ways, but my favorite workers are those that, of course, lift up the facts, but then also realize that there always needs to be a spiritual grounding and transformation that converts ideas into life and action. Marianne Percy is one of those people. A large part of her work has been in Quaker circles, including with Quaker Earth Care Witness, but her insights, methods, and inspiration are available to all, and they lead to a vital, whole, and healing earth. Marianne Percy joins us today from the great outdoors, surrounded by birdsong in Bellingham, Washington. Marianne, what a delight to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. So tell me a little bit, uh, how long have you been in Bellingham, Washington? Not quite seven years. So you told me before we got on that you spent time for a number of years down in San Diego, but your accent is not San Diegan, however that's said. No, you can take the New Yorker out of New York. (laughs) Which part of New York were you? Long Island. You say Long Island. Well, if I don't say it, other people say it, and that's pretty annoying. So I may as well preempt it and say (laughs) Long Island. And, you know, one of the wonderful things about Long Island is the glacier-carved North Shore and salt water on Long Island Sound. So you have this very cozy sound with bays and coves and whatnot. And then you drive 11 miles across the island or ride your bicycle and you are at the Atlantic Ocean. So salt water, you know, it's a huge part of who we are. So were you a nature girl in your youth? You know, I went back to get all this because I I always remember feeling super connected to the forest and certainly to the water. And my mother, who was not a great historian, when I went back to ask her, I don't know, 25 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, what she remembered, she was pulling up a memory. She said, I don't know how old you were, but you knew how to read. So you're probably about five. You came home crying inconsolably and you weren't bleeding. So I knew that, you know, you hadn't broken anything. And anyway, I couldn't get anything out of you. You were crying so much. And then you calmed down enough that I ascertained that, you know, you hadn't had a fight with your best friend and you're still crying, but you finally choked out the words that you saw a sign among the trees next door. I refuse to call land a lot. You know, language is really important. So it was land and it was certainly not old growth, but it was Eastern deciduous forest land. And I saw a sign there apparently that indicated that there were houses that were going to be built and my trees were being cut down. And I was a mess. I was so angry and so upset. And yeah, I remember playing in those woods. And, you know, kind of the paradox of it was that one of the, they built three houses there. In one of the houses lived a woman who became a really dear person in my life. You know, it's just one of those strange paradoxes. But even now, I refuse to call buildings for human habitation developments 
because that doesn't really tell the whole story of all that's being destroyed and all the homes for countless species that are being destroyed. So I sometimes call them destructions. (laughs) We could call them encroachments. That's a truer word. I mean, and the other thing, I, you know, what little we were taught about indigenous people in this, on this continent when I was a kid, most of which was, you know, that they were savages. But I always got that they had this connection to the land and the inhabitants of the land, the more than human inhabitants of the land. And I always felt that. I mean, it didn't feel like appropriation. It felt like, well, when you listen to little kids, you know, they'll talk about the tree as she or he or the squirrel, or she, or he, and then the grown-up says, oh, no, honey, that's an it. But somehow I never lost that. I've always had this sense that, like, I liked wearing soft-sole shoes, like my slippers outside, because I could feel the ground better. And it always made sense to me that we were part of a bigger community. I didn't have that language then, obviously, but... Did you get this also from your parents, or is this just Marianne Percy being... Yeah, I don't think, my father wanted to go camping, but he grew up in the inner city in in New York in the early part of this century. And my mom grew up in a small town in Northeast Pennsylvania. So, you know, they had a little garden and stuff, but neither of them were terribly outdoorsy. We didn't go hiking. We didn't go camping. I always wanted to. I remember sleeping in the backyard with my best friend, but, you know, and coming inside when it started raining. But yeah, no, it wasn't from them. And my brother didn't get it either. So I'm the lucky one. So we're going to be talking about your connection to nature, your connection with Quaker Earth Care Witness. But I really want to get there by going through you and your experience. You're my same age. And so for me, there's a lot of cultural markers along the way. So for instance, I was in 10th grade during the first Earth Day right? I was part of a presentation to our school about Earth Day. What did you do for the first Earth Day? Well, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. Because when we were in middle school, junior high, as it was called then, in high school, you know, it was like the tail end of the civil rights movement. It was a lot of anti-Vietnam war protests going on, the peace movement. And I recognized that they were important, but I also recognized that they didn't have my name on them. I was engaged only peripherally with any of that. But when Earth Day was announced, Gaylord Nelson, it was like I was there. And I worked after school every day, so really didn't have a lot of engagement with clubs or sports or anything like that. But when the Earth Day was announced, I became the student chair of the student faculty committee on Earth Day. We organized a whole teach-in at the school, and then we organized a stream cleanup in town that we invited the community, and we had this whole educational thing on I think that was when American cheese starts first started getting individually wrapped, like overpackaging to the max. Anyway, we were doing a lot of education. But yeah, Earth Day was, was a big deal for sure. And there was a little newsletter that came out called Environmental Action. It was a national newsletter that I subscribed to. And it was already called that in 1970? Environment was a relatively new word at that point. Right. Well, the EPA was founded in, what, 72, I think. And I have heard numerous people, mostly on the Quaker Earth Care Witness discussion listserv, write about, how did anyone choose the word environmental? It should have been the Earth Protection Agency. And just the word environment, I don't know at what point that word really started bugging me. But 
I think it was Einstein who said you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that got you into it or something like that. Well, the word environment perpetuates the division between humans and the rest of the living world. It's the environment out there, and then the human is separate. You know, we've legislated this also with, like, the Wilderness Act. And as great as it is to have a Wilderness Act, where humans are the visitor in these federal wilderness areas, it also perpetuates the worldview that we can't be in a place without destroying it, which is a lot of evidence for that. But <laughs> That's getting us up close to some of the activism that you've done. And I want to sort out both pieces of the spirituality underneath it and the outward actions that accompany that kind of spiritual connection. So you were early on one of the people involved with what at that time was called Friends in Unity with Nature, which has, as you just mentioned about environmental, it gets rid of that separation, it's, it's, which is why I think that name was chosen. It emphasized the unity instead of the separation. Tell me about your early involvement with Friends in Unity with Nature. I started going to Quaker meeting in 1986, and I just tangentially I'll say that one of the things that really contributed to my convincement was recognizing that the Friends' testimonies on simplicity, peace, integrity, community, and equality, for instance, were completely congruent with living in right relationship with the living world. So that was 86, and I think the California Friends in Unity with Nature started in the late 80s, but I was in New York at the time, and somewhere along the way learned about the North America-wide Friends Committee on Unity with Nature, and was asked by, I don't remember who, to be a member of the steering committee from New York. One of the wonderful things about FCUN, even then, as you said, is that it really recognizes the spiritual dimension of the problem. And I'm really grateful for the scientists doing all their good work to mitigate and to point out what the problems are. And I really appreciate the environmental laws that were passed and are now being abrogated and destroyed all over the place. And I'm really grateful for the people in the streets protesting. All those pieces are absolutely essential and it was, in, it was actually in the late 80s that I came across Matt Fox's book, The Coming of the Cosmic Christ, and stayed up all night long reading it because it was, you know, when you read something that you didn't know you knew, but you read it or you hear it and you realize that you knew this all along, it was that book that helped me realize that it's always been a spiritual concern. And for me, the place where... I wanted and needed and want and need to put my attention is on helping people transform their relationship with the living world. Matt Fox, in his book, The Coming of the Cosmic Christ and subsequent writings, and then Thomas Berry and Joanna Macy, all of whom I had the privilege of spending time with, were really talking. I mean, Matt's words were the new cosmology. I've always been a big picture person, so it's like, what's underneath that? And what's underneath that? And what's underneath that? And fundamentally, what's underneath it is our understanding of our place in the universe. And that is not religion, that's spirituality. I mean, my understanding of spiritual, I mean, people have all different definitions, but how do we understand our place in the universe? How do we understand what we're here for? How do we relate to other beings? How do we relate to whatever our concept of God is, if we have one? 
that's our cosmology. So to have a top-down hierarchical cosmology where humans are the crown of creation and everything else is there for our use is completely unworkable because we're part of a web. We're not part of a pyramid. And if you destroy the web, you destroy yourself. So Friends Committee on Unity with Nature, to circle back to the question, recognized, recognizes its, its subsequent incarnation, changed names, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago to Quaker Earthcare Witness, recognized and recognizes that there is a fundamental spiritual dimension to the problem that needs addressing. And the group, the organization, works on both the practical as well as the spiritual dimensions of the problem. And we're going to delve into that as we speak with Marianne Percy. But one of the things I want to circle back to, you said in 86 is when you connected with Quakers. I connected earlier. I was raised Catholic. And when I was 18, I found out about Quakers and started moving in that direction. I was firmly there four years later. But uh, where were you in between before 1986? And I'm wondering what it is that got you there. You, you talk about the spirituality already of the earth care part. Were you just a wood nymph wandering around the world waiting for a home or what? I kind of like that. It would have to be a wooden sea nymph, though. <laughs> well, my mother was Russian Orthodox, which was the one true church, capital OTC, you should know. And my father was Jewish, but he rarely went to synagogue. I can count probably on one or two hands the number of times he went to synagogue. So he was not observant. So it was the one true church. And the particular congregation that we were, my mother was part of was mostly immigrants who had been fleeing Stalin. And so Sunday school was in Russian, which I didn't understand. And church services were in Slavonic, which I didn't understand. I learned to read Cyrillic in second grade because standing literally for two hours for a Sunday morning church service was not my favorite thing. So I started singing in the choir and reading Cyrillic. I mean, not reading it, pronouncing it. But the theology never worked for me. The theology was hierarchical, it was patriarchal, it was misogynistic, it was warm theology, oh lowly me, an unworthy sinner. None of that stuff ever worked for me. But I realized when I went back to look at what benefits I derived from that faith tradition, it was the mysticism that was significant to me. And the fact that my left brain was completely clueless about what was going on because it was all in a foreign language, meant that my right brain, I don't know if you're, you or your listeners are familiar with the Eastern Orthodox tradition, but it's extraordinary festival and feast for the senses. I mean, there's this beautiful, very unusual chanting, singing in a cappella, and there are these amazing Byzantine icons with glittering gold leaf and beeswax candles and the scent of the beeswax combining with the scent of the incense and then the chanting and then the priests and the deacons in their vestments and this brocade. And it was extraordinary. And so I think that whatever inclinations little kids have toward mysticism was definitely enhanced by that experience. Kind of a sidebar, one of my favorite probably my only favorite service happened on the Thursday before Easter, which the Eastern Church calls Holy Thursday. And it was this beautiful two-hour service that 
you got to hold a candle the whole time, and I would pull hairs off my head and burn them in the can. <laughs> <laughs> I learned how awful smelling human hair is, but the music I liked even better, and the readings were the story of Jesus' passion, and for some reason I really loved it. And then around the time I became a teenager, they started getting more modern at my mother's church, and some of the church service was in English. And it was appalling. It was the most anti-Semitic horror show of hymns. They really weren't hymns, whatever you call them, music and prayers. Because it was written, that service, the liturgy was written by John Chrysostom, a Greek from the 4th century, I think, who was a vehement anti-Semite. And (laughs) it's just bizarre. So the mysticism from that faith tradition was was really fundamental, and I became extremely anti-religion and very allergic to proselytizing of any kind. So in undergraduate school, you know, that was when TM was really popular, and somebody convinced me to go to a TM talk, and it sounded like the biggest pile of horse manure I'd ever heard. It was just like, oh, you have a secret mantra. Oh, my God, what a great marketing scheme. You have a secret mantra. I mean, it was... (laughs) Pay up, and then you can have your secret mantra. (laughs) And don't tell anyone, you know? And then when I lived in San Francisco, after undergrad school, somebody took me to a est thing, and I just walked out of there. Like, don't tell me I can't go to the bathroom without permission. So I was really allergic to organized religion, but I always, always, as we were talking before the recording, I always felt a mystical connection outdoors in the forest and by the seashore. That was always there. Always felt an incredible connection with birds, especially. So... In my mid-twenties, I was studying, I was back from San Francisco studying piano in Manhattan with a Jubu, as they're sometimes known. My piano teacher had been brought up Jewish and became Buddhist, and she told me that my piano playing would be a lot better if I had a meditation practice. And that just sounded like more proselytizing to me. So I put her off, and, and I'd been playing the piano since I was seven, so I really was interested in playing better. And so she kept at it. She was pretty uh, determined. You know, she told me it wasn't religion. And yeah, anyway, so a year later, I went to this uh, Shambhala training program in Manhattan. It was a revelation. You know, to, I, it was a non-residential weekend. And I like to say I sat still long enough to get a little bit of a sense of who I was. And I liked who I met. I was 30, so it was like that perfect Jungian rebirth time. And I went to a few of the weekends, and I really loved the practice of silence. And the people were really nice, but it wasn't home. And I wasn't clear on why it wasn't home, but it was clear it wasn't home. I since understand why. But around the same time, I was working with a really good therapist. So at the end of my session, I would every two weeks when I saw her, I would say, so what's my homework? And she would say, being the good therapist she was, what's your homework? And my answer was always, I need to meditate more. So one fine day, after weeks of this, she said, you don't need to do it alone, you know. And that was a revelation because I had not had good experiences in community as a kid, both in school and at my mother's church, which, you know, I didn't feel a sense of community there because everything was in Russian and didn't feel like I fit because everybody seemed like that tradition worked for them and it didn't work for me. So I started faith community shopping. The first place I went was one of these new age, I like to call them greed is abundance churches. You know, those poor people in pick the country are, you know, 
really poor because they don't put their affirmations on the mirror and repeat them every morning in the bathroom. (laughs) And so that wasn't a fit. And then the next week I went to a Unitarian congregation, you know, it was beautiful sanctuary with skylights and beautiful singing, string quartet playing when you walked in and this lovely candle lighting ritual and these great people that, you know, you want to go to a Bergman film with. But the minister got up and said he didn't know what faith was. And I'm like, well, I may not use the G word, but I know what faith is. And so that wasn't a fit. And then the third week, I, you know, I was living on Long Island, and there are lots of friends meetings on Long, relatively on Long Island. And so there were like three or four within less than an hour's drive of my house. And there was one that I used to go past at least once a week because it was on my way to this place I used to like to go for walks. And as it turned out, a meeting house was built in 1725. George Fox had preached not far from there. That was the congregation that he had actually preached to. So I went, and it was the Saturday after Thanksgiving, 1986, and it was like, you know, what people who feel a fit with friends say is, is like, found out you were always a friend, but just didn't know it. So, yeah, the silence, silence is great. That's a wonderful description of the journey. You do that so well. And (laughs) you you capture so much of the flavor of it. And, you know, we each have our own story of how we get where we are. I'm glad that you have the consciousness of it. My experience, by the way, growing up Catholic, first 10 years of my life was Latin Mass. Before Vatican II, right? Yeah, and I'm thankful for that because I I think I'm a Quaker now because of that experience that, in fact, when it's in Latin and you don't understand the words, you go somewhere else in your mind instead of the usual Protestant approach of let's analyze the sermon or whatever or that kind of thing. And, and you know, there's, there's other things that were not appropriate for me, which is why I didn't end as a Catholic. But I think that enriched me to have a place of stillness within where I could see the world better and myself. Yeah. So it sounds like we both got that in different ways, you through Russian Orthodox. So what I really want to talk about is activism for the earth, which is why we have folks, Marianne Percy, here today for Spirit in Action. She's connected with an organization called Quaker Earth Care Witness. The website for that group is quakerearthcare.org. The link's on nordenspiritradio.org. And on the site, we have links to all of our guests of the last 15 years. So please come and check out whoever you would like. Post comments and rate the programs when you see them. Look at our donate button and say, no, I don't have any money, and just go on your way. Or if you feel led to support, then please do click on that. And even more importantly, though, is just to make sure that there's a local voice raised up wherever you are. Community radio station is one of the places I think it's best lifted up. And there's a couple right near our guest, Marianne Percy, who's in Bellingham, Washington. So please support your local community radio station for alternative news and music. You'll find great resources that fit you where you live. So I really want to dive into that, Marianne, about what you've done. One of the issues that some people have with spirituality is it can be navel-gazing. And it's not that there's anything wrong with navels, but some people think that once you get to the navel, you stop. I take it that's not your approach. When you get to the center, what do you do there that makes a difference to the world outside? I realized I left a really important piece out which kind of provides the foundation for the answer to this question. 
When I was 19, I was at my parents' house for the summer. My boyfriend at the time was over, and he was, he was a mystic himself, though he would never have used that word. And I was baking banana bread, and he was just hanging out in the living room, lying on the floor, just thinking about stuff, which was one of his favorite things to do. And he came in the kitchen with this voice filled with wonder and amazement and said, you know, I've just been thinking that for as small as we are, as, a, as humans are, anything we do impacts the whole universe. And as big as the universe is, as big as the universe is, whatever happens in the universe impacts us. So that was Richard. And he went back in the living room and I finished putting the banana bread in the oven. And we went in, I was, went into the living room, we're lying on the floor, candles lit. The candle, this is so bizarre. We were not doing substances. This was a substance-free trip. The candle is casting a shadow on the ceiling. And the shadow takes the form of a human embryo and transforms in through fish, amphibian, reptile, bird, and into a face. And it was like the quintessential old white guy with the beard, you should pardon the expression, um, <laughs> God face. It was a longer beard. She's referring to my beard, folks. <laughs> a nice white beard. <laughs> very nice, very nice. And the being was talking to us, saying, I was kind of lip reading, the being was getting very agitated about the state of the world. Now, this was in 1973, that humans were really messing up. And, you know, there was some recognition of this with Earth Day and all the Endangered Species Act and the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, da, 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 all the legislation. I mean, there was recognition in Rachel Carson's work. and But humans were really messing up and humans really didn't get it, that we needed to change direction. And you two are more aware of this than most, maybe most humans or most human, most your industrial growth society humans or whatever. And you have a responsibility to teach and inform people that they need to do things differently, that they really need to change direction. You know, in the Hebrew word for sin means missing the mark. That humans are really, they, this being didn't use the word sin, but... Clearly, humans were missing the mark, and we need to transform, which is actually a messianic event, I've learned since then. But anyway, the being kept getting increasingly agitated, and so Richard blew out the candle. And we were just like, what just happened? This was really cosmic, and like, we go outside to look for UFOs, and I mean, this, this is way before I had any understanding of a leading, but it was clearly a leading. I didn't use that word, but it was very clear that I had been told what my job was supposed to be. So, you know, that was over 40 years ago. And over the years, I've been more and less faithful to that leading. And so, in a sense, when I've talked about my understanding that my job is not to do the science, my job is not to do the politics, my job is not to do even necessarily a lot of street protests, though I've done some, that my job is to help educate and inspire, you know, that great Greek word metanoia, transformation of consciousness. That really came from that experience. So, you know, how do you do that? And I felt so inadequate to the task for so long. And while the urgency is so ferocious and increasing, of course, that we transform and do things differently, 
on a massive scale. At the same time, that isn't, that's certainly not how Quaker process works, but that's certainly not what my trajectory was. And I look at the wonderful teachers whose feet I've had the opportunity to sit at the feet of and, you know, kind of gathering tools along the way and growing in my ability to put together a coherent message and communicate it. I spent winter term in 2004 with my kids at Pendle Hill as a resident student, and I was trying to figure out what I was supposed to be when I grew up again. And I was in this class on discerning your calls, and we had like many clearness committees to help people understand how to do things. And people who weren't Quakers, we could maybe do a sidebar on what a clearness committee is. But one of the things that had come to me before I got to Pendle Hill was that I was supposed to go do hospice volunteer training. And I had all these questions about what, you know, was I supposed to be a hospice volunteer or was I, what, what? What am I supposed to do with this? And the answer was, you don't get to know that until you go do what I told you to do. So, um, and I later came to understand that when you get swept up by a magic carpet, it's really about get on, sit down, shut up, and hold on, because magic carpets have neither headlights, brakes, nor steering wheels. So um, you just hit better, you know. And so I shared with my clearness committee that I had this sense, I very clear knowing that I needed to go do hospice volunteer training when I went back to, I was living in California at the time, to get back to California from Pendle Hill. But I was supposed to, I thought I was supposed to, there's a man at Pacific Yearly Meeting, Carl Magruder, if you're listening, Carl, thank you for this. He gave me the words, preach the gospel of the earth. I thought I was supposed to do that. And now it's really clear I'm supposed to go do hospice volunteer training. And one of the people in my group said, well, It seems to me that working in hospice, you learn a lot about how to help people with grief. And if you're going to be helping people transform their relationship with Earth, you're certainly going to be looking at a lot of grief. And certainly, I had already done quite a bit of work with Joanna Macy, who wrote Despair and Personal Power in the Nuclear Age, I think in the 80s, where she points out the essentialness of traveling through our grief experience many times in order to come out the other side and not be paralyzed by it and actually be able to take effective action. So, so yeah, so I did hospice volunteer training. So anyway, along the way, getting to do some work with Matthew Fox and then sitting at Thomas Berry's feet and all his work with the dream of the earth and understanding that the community of life has its own interiority and integrity and that the earth is not a collection of objects for human despoilation and use, but abuse, but is in fact a communion of subjects, that the living world is a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. I mean, the guy was such an amazing poet. And, you know, in Joanna's work, which she eventually, which eventually became the work that reconnects and taking people through this spiral of gratitude, honoring our pain for the world, seeing things with new eyes, so this opportunity to really transform our relationship, and then going forth and doing what we are called to do in action. So I spent a lot of years and decades sitting at the feet of those people and learning what there was to learn, still learning what there is to learn, and eventually getting to the point where, you know, well, in the 90s, When I first became part of Friends Committee on Unity with Nature, I helped organize a quarterly meeting, Unity with Nature Committee, that we did a little bit of teaching with that. 
I had the opportunity to do a plenary talk at New York Early Meeting on Friends and Earth Care. That was really, you know, basically, why should friends care as people of faith? Why should we have a different relationship with the community of life? And I spent some time with Elizabeth Watson along the way, and I was very enchanted that she used my expression, there can be no peace without a planet, in a couple of her pamphlets. So then, you know, working with Friends Committee on Unity with Nature and doing some programs for the Unity with Nature Center at a few FGC gatherings in the mid-late 90s, then focusing on being my pro bono work became really my kids pretty intensively. And once I moved to Bellingham, I was able, once they were done with high school and into and beyond college, able to jump back in and get involved with Quaker Earth Care Witness, doing a quarterly meeting program on earth care and interest groups. Western Friend published an article I wrote last November, December issue called Learning and Living a New Story for Earth from Separation to Reciprocity, you know, doing interest groups at annual sessions and I was supposed to be co-leading a workshop at FGC Gathering this year, but that may happen next year in person. And then one of the most exciting things, a couple of the most exciting things have been Quaker-related, being invited in 2020, which has now been postponed to 2021, to be a plenary speaker for the Pacific Northwest Quaker Women's Theology Conference, as well as having led some work that reconnects programs for Quakers as well as the community as a whole. We're going to step through a lot of that detail in more detail, but I think that there's a piece somewhere that I need to address. A lot of our listeners, of course, have no knowledge of what FGC and the Clearness Committee and all these kinds of things are. And yet, very clearly, you, not having grown up as Quaker, have found this as a fertile place to grow. At 19, you have this experience you and Richard, there's something woo-woo about that experience, right? You bet. As you said, there were no mind-altering. This isn't LSD or acid of some sort. This is somehow a message that both you and he received. Yeah. How did you hear that message? Because this seems important because I imagine there's listeners to this program who are saying, you're making up stuff, right? (laughs) So what is this? It clearly was completely life-altering for you. There's a, a direction that's set in your life because of something that happened. Well, what's really interesting was that, you know, as we were saying, I've always felt this connection to Earth. And in ninth grade, the honors biology classes got to go spend a week in upstate New York and do an ecology unit. And I was sure after that experience that I was, that's what I was going to be, was this, you know, this ecology scientist, not an environmental scientist. And then I took chemistry in 10th grade with the world's worst teacher and realized that I couldn't possibly be an ecologist because... I hated chemistry. But in terms of how I understood that mystical experience, which isn't what I called it then, I was baffled. I mean, my left brain was completely befuddled by what just happened. I really didn't have a left brain. And I was really into my left brain at the time. You know, it was very near and dear to my heart. But I didn't have a clue of what was going on. Like, where did that message come from? It was, I didn't believe in a God of any, you know, I didn't believe in a, who was it? Was it Bonhoeffer who said, tell me what God you don't believe in, because I probably don't believe in that God either. But 
I definitely didn't believe in the guy with the white beard that I saw in the shadow. But, you know, it was clear that that was a metaphor for some kind of authority. I believed in some kind of energy in the universe. And while I couldn't have articulated it then, even then I had a sense of kind of the non-theist way I explain it is the word Aikido. And Aikido is this very spiritual martial art. And for your listeners who don't know about Aikido, it was developed by, I'm going to butcher his name, Morihai Ushida, who was a Japanese man, 1920s, multiple black belts in various martial art forms, but realized that they were too aggressive and that they were hurtful, that they were not harmonious. And he developed Aikido, which is a defensive martial art, that is designed to use the force of the attacker to disable the attacker, but not to humiliate or harm the attacker. And the word Aikido literally means, I mean, there are probably multiple translations, but the way, one way I've seen it translated is the way of being in harmony with the universe. So the Christian translation of that is, thy will be done. You know, I worked as a hospice and palliative care chaplain, so you have to have all these languages so I can translate pretty easily from Christian to non-theist. So probably my understanding as a 19-year-old was something like, you know, that there is a way of being in harmony with the universe. You know, this thing that Richard came in the kitchen to tell me, of, you know, we have this connection to the universe and whatever happens to the universe happens to us and whatever happens to us happens to the universe, that there's, it's this web, right? and that we're all part of this cosmic dance. And, you know, we're getting the science for that. But that understanding has existed among mystics and sages of all traditions for millennia. And now the science is catching up. These consciousness studies, yada, yada, right? And physicists are discovering that material has a non-material reality. And yeah, it's woo-woo, but there's science behind it. And even though when I was 19, I really wanted to understand the mechanism, the science, that didn't make it any less true, which was really unusual for me at age 19. Well, it's an amazing experience that you have, especially that you have it with someone else. That's what John Jungblatt said. He was another person whose feet I got to sit at the feet of. John was a beloved Quaker elder, and he was my spiritual guide during the last eight or nine years of his life. And when I told him about it, you'll be pleased to know, I hope, Mark, that John said, it's really unusual for someone to have a shared mystical experience of a leading. And of course, I lost touch with Richard, but the last time I knew about his whereabouts, he wasn't really particularly doing anything with this. I think it is absolutely essential that we find the nutrient in which we can grow. You know, Jesus uses a lot of parables that are earth-based, right? You know, you cast seeds and see what grows, or you lose sheep and you bring them back or whatever. There's a lot of it that's very connected. And for you, you clearly found some ground to grow in, some nurturing substance. And it clearly is not just your rational brain driving, but it's very clear that your rational brain is present in witnessing and saying, okay, well, what do I do with this as well? So give me a few ideas of how Marianne Percy ended up living this. I mean, you raised kids. 
Some people will say you're evil. You're not supposed to raise kids. We're overpopulated. Humans are totally sinking this planet because we have too many. I don't agree with that. But there's all of these questions that we confront as we move forward to try and live up to the greatest light that we have been given. How then shall I live? <laughs> yeah. Knowing all this, how then shall I live? I mean, that's the fundamental question, right? I mean, in terms of our actions, certainly human beings spend too much time being human doings and not enough time being human beings. But anyway, yeah, I actually didn't want to have kids for a really long time because I was really concerned, not certainly about the impact of more population and also what kind of world were they going to inherit was a huge, huge, huge concern. I don't know if it's a rationalization or not, but I came to see that at least it was my hope that their experience growing up would result in their being part of the solution rather than part of the problem, or more of the solution than the problem. That the world needs people who are willing to take action on her behalf. Certainly, both of my kids are very aware of that and doing that in their own ways. So that's been extremely gratifying, and I'm really proud of both of them in that way. You know, I've seen a lot lately about how insufficient individual action is in these times of grave peril. While I understand that individual action is certainly insufficient, what's that amazing quotation of, it is not yours to do the whole task, but neither then shall you lay it down. I think we all have that which we are supposed to be doing, whether it be, you know, being in the streets, as I've already said, doing the science. Sandra Steingraber came to speak with Quaker Earth Care Witness just about a year ago. She's a systems ecologist, teaches at Cornell and Ithaca College, and she is basically the person credited with founding Don't Frack New York. And she spent a lot of her career writing papers and doing the science to try to convince the powers that be to not do fracking and other devastating extractive processes. She felt like it fell on deaf ears and ultimately became an in-the-streets activist and has been arrested numerous, numerous times. She was extraordinary. She has an, there's an interview for your listeners on that Bill Moyers interviewed her a number of years ago, which is available on his website, and I highly recommend that. For me, it has been about individual action. It also has been about teaching based on my leading. I mean, that was what I was told to do, which doesn't mean it can't be edited and revised. And I'm still listening. I mean, that's kind of our responsibility is to be ever vigilant for what friends call the still small voice and how, however we feel we receive guidance on what is ours to do. And I've been told that my actions have inspired people. I was certainly inspired by the witness of a friend from Pacific Yearly Meeting, Stephen Matchett, who just died this May. He was led to not ride in cars, not just own a car, but ride in cars, and to use his bicycle, walking, buses, and trains for transportation. And so thanks to Stephen, I don't fly nearly as much as I used to. I still fly too much, but I use a solar clothes dryer. I do non-fossil fuel recreation. I, <laughs> you know, I keep my house at 60 degrees in the winter, and if I owned my house, I would have solar panels. And unfortunately, we do not have community solar in this community, but that's one of the things I'm engaged with locally is trying to get community solar so people who don't own their house or have the wrong roof line can still use solar panels. 
not eating meat and all kinds of trying to keep a lower carbon footprint behavior. And I was part of the 20, I guess it was in September of 2016, is that when it was? The Moral March on Climate Action in D.C., which coincided with the Bishop of Rome, Pope Francis's visit. So really recognizing that there's a moral component to this for people of any faith tradition that we shouldn't be taking that which isn't ours. There's a whole lot there that people will connect with. But the piece that I would like you to delve into now, Marianne, is about the work that reconnects. Because I have a feeling those who have not experienced it, and I have experienced it, fortunately, we have Deirdre in our meeting here who's been sharing it, spreading it, and I'm very thankful to her for doing that. There are any number of people who are doing a part of what will get us where we need to go. The work that reconnects, I think, is about how we can strengthen. It's about how we can go clearly into that future. A lot of people want to say, well, I can just install solar, tell me how much it'll cost. But without the interchange, that is at best a Band-Aid is what I, I imagine is true. And mind you, I'm not talking down solar. I'm totally for it. And biking instead of doing all of that. But the question is, how do you become part of the cloth instead of just a thread that's dangling? And so the work that reconnects, I think, is something that Marianne Percy can tell us about. I realize that you're following in the footsteps of Joanna Macy. Explain a little bit more what the work that reconnects is and what its purpose is and what effect it actually has. Great question. The work that reconnects is really a vehicle. It's a really wonderful vehicle. As I was saying earlier, you know, I've always been a big picture person. And so for me, yes, by all means, put solar panels on the roof of your house. And that's part of what we need to do. But in order to really be effective change agents, it would really help to see the world through a different lens than the one we've been given, which is this hierarchical human at the top. The world is our oyster for doing with whatever we want. And that's reflected in our language. That's reflected in our laws. Certainly we know rights of nature movements are happening throughout the world, even some in this country. So the work that reconnects is a tool. The way Joanna describes it is that it helps people discover and experience their innate connections with each other and the self-healing powers of the web of life. So it isn't didactic as much as it's experiential. I mean, the old thing about you can give people fish, but if you get them a fishing rod and teach them how to do it, they're self-empowered. And so I really see the work that reconnects in the same way, that it's a tool to help us realize our innate connection. And once we have an innate connection, then we may be more likely to put the solar panels on our roof. We may be more likely to be in the street protesting. We may be more likely to be involved with our local community and protecting the stream. We may be fill in the blank. And then she says, um, discover and experience their innate connections with each other and the self-healing powers of the web of life. And then this phrase is really, really important, transforming despair and overwhelm. Because we know despair is so paralyzing. It's so paralyzing. And there are countless opportunities for despair that existed even before 2016. But since 2016, there have been even more. I mean, anybody who cares at all about the fate of the earth and humans 
just has been watching this endless encroachment and dismantling of any protection whatsoever. So transforming despair and overwhelm into inspired collaborative action. It was Margaret Mead who said, never doubt that a small band of dedicated people can't transform the world. It's the only thing that ever has. And working in isolation has its value. I certainly applaud that. And it's a lot easier to do things in community. And so part of the beauty and the brilliance of the work that reconnects is that it's a community that comes together to do this. So there's a very robust website, workthatreconnects.org. There are facilitators all over the country that wherever you live, and all over the world, in fact, I misspoke, it's truly all over the world. And I've been involved since COVID with the opportunity facilitators are trained to do virtual work that reconnects workshops. So COVID is not an impediment to participating in work that reconnects work. And I highly encourage your listeners to, you know, ideally a local group because post COVID you'll have community wherever you are to do this work with. I feel very clearly the importance of the spiritual work that gets us ready to be better on the earth and to have the earth in some sense survive, or at least humans place on it survivable. But there can be no doubting that something needs to be done now. It isn't just, you know, I've got 20 years to navel gaze and I can do it. 20 years from now, a good share of the species, including people on the planet, will be exterminated if we don't change directions radically right now. Because of that, I've been very excited about a group called Extinction Rebellion. It seems to me they're really well thought out. It seems that they've got spiritual connection, including with the kind of work that Joanna Macy has done. What's been your connection, insight, reaction to Extinction Rebellion and what they're planning? I love Extinction Rebellion, and I was really excited. I know they started in the UK. I was really excited by their effectiveness in London when they did that blockade. Was it of London Bridge? And the Parliament listened. And I know there's an Extinction Rebellion in Seattle that I wish it were easier to get to Seattle on public transit. I've not been involved with them directly, and I would like to. And one of the most striking things for me, and perhaps for your listeners who don't know, the way I didn't, is that the extinction they're talking about is human extinction, because we can't exist without the rest of the living world. It's, we're cutting down the tree of life, and we're intrinsically dependent on it. But yeah, it's about human extinction. And I'm very excited about their work and I'm looking forward to seeing how I am led to connect with them more robustly. So the answer is not enough yet. Or maybe it is enough yet, but it looks like there's going to be more coming down the road. And thank you for asking that question. Well, I'm kind of hoping that maybe next April when we descend upon Washington, D.C., that that includes you and me. And so maybe we'll be walking arm in arm down the road and participating in this thing that's got to change now, not in 20 years, but now. We don't have 20 years. You know, that's what Greta's been saying. And certainly it's imperative. Every scientific marker of worst case scenario has been underestimated. You know, you look at the UN reports and whatnot, and we know that you know, the ice caps are melting faster than we thought. The glaciers are falling into the sea faster than we thought. The CO2 levels in our atmosphere are going up faster than we thought. The temperatures in the Arctic, the fires in Australia, and the rate of extinction of other species. One of my teachers that I didn't name was Robin Wall Kimmerer. 
who's a citizen Potawatomi scientist. She's a bryologist, a moss expert. She teaches at the New York State School of Forestry, I think it's called, in Sy- at part of Syracuse University. Her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, has been an extraordinary source of wisdom and inspiration for me. She uses the word reciprocity. She doesn't like the word sustainability. Sustainability just means humans can keep on plundering at a level that won't destroy everything quite so fast. But to truly understand that our relationships with the living world are reciprocal, and to truly understand that as much as we love the Earth, what is it like if we consider that Earth loves us? When you love your child, you have certain responsibilities to your child. So what are our responsibilities to the living world? You know, I wish there were a way that we could involve all of our listeners for Spirit in Action to be sitting in and doing this. I do want to point out to people that there is a website, workthatreconnects.org. You'll find some of these resources and connect with people who are interested in this kind of work. You can also contact Marianne Percy, who we've been speaking with for this past hour of Spirit in Action. We'll have her website available on northernspiritradio.org. Just come to our site. Also on our site, by the way, you'll find some bonus excerpts, things that we talked about that we couldn't fit into the broadcast. Again, she's been very active for a number of years now with a group that's now called Quaker Earth Care Witness, website quakerearthcare.org. We're scratching the surface here. But if you have the chance to visit Bellingham, Washington, and sit down with Marianne Percy, I have a feeling you'll be better for it, you'll be closer to the earth, and you'll be ready to move forward in your life where you're led. This is not prescriptive. We're not telling other people what to do, but we're helping people get to their true calling. So I want to thank you for doing that work, for trusting it to come out in you, even when you had various aversions that were keeping you from going down the road. I so admire people who step past their limitations to make something better happen for themselves and for the world. And you've been doing that, Marianne. And thank you. And I want to thank Janine for connecting me with you. Thanks to Janine for connecting me with you, Marianne Percy. And thank you for spending this hour with us today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark, for providing this platform for this important work. And again, folks, more links on northernspiritradio.org. And we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh